89.9, the light you're in conversation with Clayton. And via the wonders of Zoom, it is just so good to chat to the man behind this book. It's really his life story as well. The Crash of Rhinos. Ray Dearlove joins us. G'day, Ray. How are you, Clayton? Thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh, look, I'm doing well and uh, really, really thrilled uh, to be able to have a chat to you because I've heard about your story for a while. And so this is wonderful to uh, talk to you about your heart and your passion. I I love the name of the book, The Crash of Rhinos. It was one of those things when I was a kid, we learned that that collective noun for for, for rhinos was the crash. And obviously it has a double meaning because a lot of your life's work has been trying to stop poaching of rhinos, hasn't it? Correct. That's right. And and to offer an alternative in terms of the possible extinction of, of the of the of the species. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And the double meeting really is exactly that. It's, it's the, not as many people know about the crash as being the collective now as you two, Clayton. I can assure you of that. So, so why did you call it the crash around us? There you go. Well, well, that's thanks to my mum who uh, who loved words as as we grew up. Um Ray, let's have a, a, a bit of a chat. I suppose before we even get to to the rhinos and your love of the rhinos, take us through a bit of your life journey. Is that something that you know, even as a kid, rhinos were fascinating with you, or did it was it something that as you went through life, it became a bit more important? I think it's probably been part of my life in in uh, in, in many different ways, Clayton. I I was born in uh, in the northern part of South Africa. Um, my parents didn't have a car. So uh, we couldn't get to the, the beach where most people went to the ocean for their holidays, but we would kind of hike a lift with my dad's best friend and go to Kruger National Park, which was within three or four hours of where we lived. And that's where I think my love of animals started. And, and rhinos was just but one of them. But I'm a great fan of, of um, all animals, I must say, um, endangered or otherwise, and whether they be Australian or whether they be American or whether they're South African. So that was, that was really how it started. And then uh, that evolved to a point that, that I would go pretty much every year to, to a game park um, and enjoy basically the peace and quiet and solitude and, and calm that there is in, in when you're around animals, in, in my view. And that continued on and on and on. Um, I met my Australian wife in South Africa, and um, she, loved, she loved the bush too, thank goodness. We lived there for 15 years, then we emigrated to Australia in 1987, the two of us with our young family. Um, South Africa was a pretty miserable place in the mid-80s. It wasn't a good place to be. And who would have known that in seven years or so that Nelson Mandela would have been freed and the whole world changed. But we came out to Australia, and um, and the thing which really took me, I had a, a job, I was with IBM at the time, and, and I would go up to northern New South Wales, and I'd drive, because the countryside is so similar. I'd drive there kind of hoping to see a giraffe around the corner. <laughs> that was not to be. So we managed to get back to, to Africa kind of most most years, uh, once the kids had left school, um, and of course, COVID has, has smashed that kind of uh, opportunity. But 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 that's that was that was how my love of animals, I think, started. Um, in terms of this particular one, um, I was very much aware of the of the poaching situation and the threat that rhinos were under. And a friend of mine who with whom I'd worked at IBM actually in Johannesburg contacted me in 2012-13 and said, "Look, this is a the situation's dire. Why don't you do something about it?" And I thought, yeah, well, I live in Sydney. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but then he said, you know, why don't you think about bringing some rhinos out to Australia to keep them safe? And it's a wild idea, Clayton, and it's still a wild idea in some people's minds. But the more I looked into it, the, the, the more seriously I thought this could actually happen. And um, and that's essentially where the, where the, the plan to bring rhinos out from uh, Africa to Australia. And the analogy that 
I use, which may or may not be a good one, is if you think back, and you're too young to know this, I'm sure, but in the Blitz, in London, the Blitz in the, in the Second World War, um, a lot of parents moved their children out to the, the country areas to keep them safe. And um, that's how I, I view the Australian Rhino Project. It's, it's to keep them safe with the eventual plan, all things being equal, that they'll go back and, and seed new herds in Africa. Yeah. Uh, what I love is here, here you are, you know, this has been uh, the love of animals for many years has been part of what it is. You worked in IT, as you said, I think you, you've done a lot in real estate as well. So here you are, this is, this is your life. And someone gives you a call and says, hold on, here's a bit of a challenge, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And, and instead of saying, well, look, that's not my thing to, not my problem. You know, I, I'm here in Sydney now. You actually took that up. I, I, I think that's a big moment. Did you did you realise how big this was going to be? Or were you thinking, oh, look, I'll, I'll just see how we see how we r- ride here for a little while? Oh, I think that the latter. Initially, I thought, well, oh, let's just t- test this. But as I became more involved, the more realistic it became. And the more people I spoke to, I thought it became more realistic. But to, just to indicate the, how naive I was, in fact, like, when this first started, I, the first person I contacted was a fellow by the name of Alan Davies, who has a major property up in northern New South Wales around that Scone area. And I said to him, you know, maybe what we could do is we could bring the rhinos up and you could settle, settle them on your property, have, have them running out in the back paddock, as he puts it. Yeah, that is, that is how naive I was. So, no, but as, it, as, it, as I, I did more and more research, it became more and more possible that this thing was something that could actually happen. And um, as well as it may seem, it, it's... Um, it's got legs, it has legs, it's had le- legs and it has, still has legs in terms of making it happen. COVID's done lots to everybody, as you guys are yeah. experiencing in Victoria. Yeah. Um, as you started this project, and, you know, one of the very first stories in the, in the book is actually you um, sort of, you know, meeting up with the, the environment minister at that time, uh, you know, Mr. Hunt, and, and also from, you know, South Africa, the, the minister there who'd come over to Australia and, and you start having these conversations and, and there's opposition and there's some people who are like, yeah, absolutely, let's let's save the rhinos. This is a great idea. And others who sort of balk at it immediately. Um, yes. for, for those of us who perhaps are less familiar with 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 it, who say, say that makes perfect sense, just bring a few rhinos out, that makes sense. Right? What is the opposition to it? Why, why you know, you know, stop that? And then perhaps you need to explain sort of the poaching numbers and how they've been increasing on and on and on every year. In terms of just the people um, walking at it, you're exactly right. There were there were some who told me I was absolutely stone cold, stone mad, or whatever the expression is. Uh, to J- Greg Hunt's credit, he did not. He he took it seriously. He was well briefed, and he's. He, I must mention that his chief of staff, Wendy Wendy Black, they really supported me all the way. They understood the need for it. Um, in terms of obstacles, the biggest obstacle Clayton, that we, we we faced and face was Australia's biosecurity regulations. I fully understand it. I mean, it's it's an island, it's protectable, and if the disease had to get amongst the, the cattle and, and, and any other animal or wild animals, it would be a catastrophe. And people often threw the, the camels and the cane toads and, and probably the mice in New South Wales at the moment at me, but it's a very different situation. And, and um, I mean, rhinos have a gestation period of about 16 months. They only drop one calf at a time. Twins are unknown. And it's three or four years before the female is ready again to, to give birth. So in terms of, 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 of basically multiplying and, and, and 
overwhelming the Australian bush, that's not going to happen at all. Now, that's particularly relevant to your question about poaching because the poaching has reduced over time. It had a peak of 1,215 in one particular year, which equated to three rhinos a day. Now, that's just an extraordinary number. That number's come down to approximately 500 a year today. Um, and one of the reasons that it's come down is specifically because there's less to, less defiant. And, 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 and most people understand the logic in that. But the, the driver of this is money, as it is with most things, I suppose. When they talk about the international wildlife trade value at $25 billion and more, um, and that goes across you know, bear, bile, and tiger bones, and, and, and all sorts of things around the world, pangolins are two, of course. So there's an incentive for, for killing these animals because everybody takes a cut all the way down. And today, even a kilo, uh, the price that you would get in the black market for a kilo of rhino horn is $65,000 US. Mm. Now, an average horn size, Clayton, is probably five or six kilos. You can imagine how much money is on the table for just one rhino horn. So so poachers will go to all, all sorts of lengths and, and put their lives at risk to get this, to get some money. I, I write poetry, believe it or not. Um, and one of the poems I wrote was, is it need or is it greed? And this poaching thing. And there's been an element of both. I mean, there's certainly people who live, live below the red line. For them, it's an opportunity to make some money to feed their families. For the others, it's purely greed. And that higher up the chain you get, <clears throat> excuse me, into, into places like Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, China, is those guys who make the serious money. And you don't know who they are. No one seems to know who they are. So yeah. that gives you an indication of, of, so firstly, the Australian issue is one of biosecurity. And if you remember the Johnny Depp situation with these two pistol and boo, I think they were called. Yeah, that's right, the dogs. <laughs> I mean, you can just multiply that by, by many in terms of the issues that we face in, in terms of getting the right as across. Yeah. Uh, can I ask a, a, a deliberately perhaps naive question, as well as a provocative question at the same point. And that is, um, you know, is there a, 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 an end point here that if, if the, the killing of rhinos keeps happening, that the extinction point is very imminent? Or is there an aspect that says, well, um, you know, is there a way to actually, you know, get a middle ground here, take some horns, but keep the population going. And I know it's deliberately provocative. I'm trying to get an understanding for us, perhaps in Australia, who don't think about the rhinos too much. No, true. And that's exactly right. The, the, that's a really difficult question. And it, it, it goes back to what is the thorniest issue, um, probably when it comes to rhino horn today. And that's the, the, the legalization of, 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 of trading in, in rhino horn. The number of advocates Around the world, uh, many of them are people who mean well and don't necessarily understand the depth of the issue. But say, well, if you legalize it, you can control it and manage it. Well, that may well be true. The question is, who would control it and manage it? And and I don't have a lot of faith in governments in general. I have even less faith in the in African governments in terms of being able to manage the situation. So, so that's the way you could do it. I, I have a good friend in South Africa. His name is John Hume. Um, his son actually lives in Melbourne, strange enough. And he has, at last count, 1,950-odd rhinos on his property. And he's a – I can never work out whether he's an entrepreneur 
or whether he's an opportunist. And there's probably a little bit of both. But of these rhinos, he, he dehorns them every two years because they regrow. A lot of people don't know that. So if you had to farm them in, in the example you use, that could work. So he's he's taken the dip in this that at some stage they will be they will be the, the, the trade will be will be legalized and he would have at last count, I worked out probably hundred million dollars, excuse me, of rhino horn sashed away in bank bank vaults around Johannesburg and Pretoria. So I don't think it'll ever happen in my life. I don't think it'll ever happen because there's too much risk involved. And there's too many there's too much corruption in the, at all levels. So I'm a little gloomy about that. And, and uh, I, 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 while I'm gloomy, I, I know there's hope. Um, they talk about a tipping point where the, the kill rate exceeds the birth rate. And um, we were at that point some years ago, and there's been a recovery to an extent. And what they've done, it's, I find it really interesting because it's basically what, what I thought of several years ago is that they're finding now safe havens and building in secret, um, little runner herds, herds around, around, and when I say, I should say crash, I should not, um, around Africa. Um, but that's a long-term possibility, yeah. long-term solution. Is the, is the, you know, as you said, you know, taking off the horn and then letting it regrow for a couple of years, does that hurt the rhino doing that? No, it doesn't. It's, um, the, the rhino horn is basically made up of, of, of keratin, which is your fingernail. So as you cut your fingernails, you can cut the horn off, provided you obviously don't get too, too close to the, to the nose. The poachers are less mm. uh, friendly, let's, let us say, or careful, and they'll just chop the face off and, mm. and take the horn with whatever goes. So, no, it doesn't hurt the runner at all if you do it properly. No, it and what about in terms of, um, I'm assuming that the horn's there for a purpose, for a rhino protection or, or whatever else it might be. What does that cost the rhino to not have a horn for a period of time? Well, it was a human, he'd say self-esteem, wouldn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> but 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 it's essentially it is it is defense. So yes, in terms of, of, of fighting, because you get a lot of male rhinos fighting over the lady. I mean that, that that a lot of that happens. And that's that's essentially the 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 main purpose of the horn. Interestingly enough, the horn will, will grow in a rectangle in a sense and it becomes sharpened because they actually um scrape it against a, a, a stone or whatever the case would be and become sharpened. But that's essentially its only use that I can think of. But it's a good question. I haven't had that too, too many times. <laughs> My guest is Ray Dearlove. He's the author of the book, The Crash of the Rhinos. We're going to hear more of the work that he's been specifically doing and um, where uh, we're currently sitting at, what needs to still be happening to help protect the rhinos. Uh, he's authored this book, The Crash of the Rhinos, and we've got a whole heap to give away. Now, how are we going to give that away? Uh, it's going to be easy for you to get your hands on one, uh, but we are going to tell you about that next. So join us in a couple of minutes as we hear more from Ray and give away some of these books, these incredible books, The Crash of the Rhinos, here on 89.9 The Light. In conversation with Clayton. On 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton, and Ray Dearlove is my guest. He's the author of this book, The Crash of the Rhinos, Preventing the Extinction of an Iconic Species. And we've been talking about Ray's love of rhinos from uh, when he was born in South Africa and then uh, now as he lives in Australia, uh, taking that call back in 2012, 2013 and someone saying, look, you've got to do something. This, the the, uh, the poaching of rhinos is a bit ridiculous. And so he did. He started saying, how about we, we move some rhinos to Australia? And, and that's still in train in, in one sense as we go forward. Um, in terms of some of the, that path 
Ray, and, and we want to focus on some of the various groups that are actually doing some incredible work at the moment. But um, to take that original idea, right, I want to try and bring people here. You talked about the fact that you went, oh, I've got a mate who probably can let some rhino run up on a on a on his property, and um, you 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 know it wasn't quite as simple as that. Take us through some of the the hurdles and the various things you had to focus on and, and look through to even get the, looking at getting some rhinos out to Australia. And I, I worked on on a basis of four pillars. I mean, the the this uh, in a in a in a not for profit today. You need to get your governance right. I mean, it, it's the, the Australian government, rightfully so, doesn't give money away, you know, willy nilly, so to speak. So we had to get the governance right, get our constitution sorted, and also in order to raise money, raise funds, we had to get what's called DGR status, which is donor donor gift recipient, which you'd be familiar with, which allows people to to get a tax deduction for the donations that they make. That was a very big challenge for us because a lot of people said, and a lot of people in government said to me, you know, why would we supports an animal which is unknown in Australia. It's not a natural species. And the issue is it's 10,000 miles away. I mean, I took a different view. To me, it's a global issue. And it really is a global issue because it, it reaches into the far corners of the, of, of the earth in, in both terms of the five species of rhinos, but also in terms of the poaching rings that, that, that operate. For example, taking out a rhino in a zoo outside Paris a couple of years ago. I mean, that's just un, unheard of. So, my view was that it was an international issue, and that and that, that actually prevailed. So we got that. So that was the first pillar. The second pillar was was getting the Australian government approval to bring the the rhinos in. That was hard too, and we got that approval. Um, there was a there was supportive people, and there were people who were less supportive, which is the same wherever you go, Glenn. I'm sure you have that in your environment. Just yep. And um, for example, I'll give you a real life example. Is that when I started this thing, the government said, the Australian government said that we need to know the history of the rhino from, from uh, where it's been, what it's been likely to, to have in terms of, of diseases and so on for the last year. Now that's manageable because the, the quarantine period will probably cover that. By the time later on came, they pushed that out to five years. Now these animals are wild caught. So you, you, You've no idea where they've been for the you know five years ago, and became what just an almost impossible um, one to to obstacle to, to overcome. But we eventually got that, and um, and then that was kind of put in the back burner when when um, when the issues with with quarantine became greater and then biosecurity came, became greater. The third um, the third pillar was to get the Australian government, the South African government, to approve it. Now, that was also a moving target. Unfortunately, the lady I met early on passed away, the Edna She was the Minister for the Environment there. But I had a lot of support in the country from, from a lot of people who saw the logic in taking animals out of a really dangerous situation and, and, and putting them somewhere where it was secure for a period of time. So that, again, took a long time. And, and, and I would, we would visit South Africa kind of once a year, which was we'd do anyway to go see the animals. And I'd combine that with, with trying my best to to um, get the approvals. Then, the, then the, the next thing became sourcing national animals. And uh, this was, uh, again, you, know, you talk about need and greed. There were people who, who felt that they could put a price on the rhinos to send them to Australia um, to be saved. And I, I just, I didn't get that at all. But I met some extraordinary people on the way through who, who, who take, took care and are still taking care of, of rhinos. And, and some of the, the veterinarians that you meet in your, in your life, in terms of their care, 
and empathy for an animal and a, you know, doctors of people and so on is just amazing. And, and I, my, I salute them. They're amongst my heroes. They, they, they really are. So we eventually got that one. And then the fourth one was fundraising. And fundraising is, is a challenge. Um, it's always a challenge. But I think if you have the right cause and if you're able to sell it with, with some logic, um, then you get support. And, and fortunately, and I, and I know Melbourne's not different from Sydney, but there's a lot of expat South Africans. Um, you know, yeah, lots of yards here and yards there. <laughs> so, so they were very generous. But not only that, the Australians as well. And, and, and people like um, uh, Jenny Gray from the Melbourne Zoo and the Werribee Zoo, who have rhinos at the moment, ex- extremely supportive. So that was that, that those were the kind of highlights of what we, or lowlights, of what we try to achieve through those four pillars. Yeah. Um, I also went to a, you know, ridiculously, you know, non-understanding position and said, how on earth do you get them here? Do you fly them on a plane? Do you put them on a boat? Like, it, did you get to those sorts of stages as well? Of, of how are we actually going to get them out? Absolutely. And, and the answer is a boat would be fine, but it, it's trips too long. So we're just talking about pre-COVID now. So the plan would be to you put them in a, in a, in a, cargo or a jumbo jet literally they, they cut their horns off for their own protection as much as anything else and and fly them from africa to to australia that's what that's been done before i mean there what a lot of people don't know is there's probably 60 to 70 rhinos in australia already Werribee zoo is one of those for sure uh, Monato zoo um, in adelaide uh taronga here there are those so that's it's a proven uh, exercise, which made me feel better too, because I was as concerned about you. As, 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 there's no doubt about that. But I'll tell you a little story about that, actually, which I think we will find out is, is that I approached DHL, because I know the chap there who runs DHL, um, um, Gary Edstein, lovely, lovely man. And uh, and I put this to him, and he laughed at me. He said, no, 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 we don't do runners from Africa. <laughs> I said, well, okay, let's, let's give that some thought. And I stayed in his case. And then I read somewhere that um, this rhino had been transported from a Czechoslovakian zoo, it wasn't in good shape, to Africa. And I guess who moved it? Yeah, Jill moved So um, I phoned Gary up and he, I know I could hear the, the, the sigh in his voice. I said, did you read that? He said, no. So I sent it to him. So he checked it out. And uh, what actually had happened is, um, is the fellow who's the head of DHL worldwide, he was in London, and he was sitting at his desk one day and the phone rang, and he said, hello, Ian speaking. And the fellow said, uh, Mr. Johnson? He said, yes. He said, it's Prince Harry. So he said, mate, it's a Friday afternoon. I'm tired. I've had a big week. Don't stuff me around. Who, who's calling? He said, it's Prince Harry. <laughs> <laughs> he said, and then he, he went from sitting down lolling in his chair to standing upright. And um, and he said, I'd like you to move this rhino if you wouldn't mind Czechoslovakia to Africa, and it happened. So it, it doesn't, you know, with all the nonsense with Harry since that, that's, that's, but it's a lovely story. So you, you fly them, and um, and there's a vet that flies along with them, and they make sure they, they, they're slightly sedated, obviously. They make sure they're fed and that, that kind of thing. And then they're going to quarantine on both sides. Yeah, wonderful. Um, now, people may have noticed, as you've said, that almost implying that's the plan, that's the plan, because it is the plan. You know, this has been seven or eight years in, in progress um, and hasn't actually hit the first one through, but that doesn't mean you give up or or the project gives up, right, on, on doing it. It's still a right project. It just takes time to do these things. Very much so. I mean, the risk is still there to the rhinos. 
you know, and I, I must distinguish between the extinction of rhinos and the extinction of rhinos in the wild is that there will always be, uh, hopefully, rhinos in zoos, you know, as, as long as they can breed and that kind of thing, and which they can, there's, there's been some success in that. But I'm talking about rhinos in the wild. So when you go to a, a, a game park in Kenya or Tanzania, any of those, that's what you want to see rhinos, the big five. Now, to all intents and purposes, rhinos are extinct north of the Zambezi River. All those countries now they're, they're trying. There's some re rewilding going on, but it's it's a bit, but it's it's essentially in in the wild. Did I answer your question? I'm not sure. Did I answer your question? Yeah. No. No. That's that. That's perfectly fine. And and I think it's that aspect of, um, you know, there is a difference with that because you know we do go to Werribee Zoo here in Melbourne and we go, oh, there's there's a, there's a rhino. So clearly, what Ray's aims is 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 done because they're here. But um, you're talking about a, a very specific purpose around that, not just to yes. be in a zoo to to be protected and and to to live in that more wild scenario, um, yeah. and and allow that to then you know if if the worst happens in in Africa to be able to then repopulate or whatever might be. Correct. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's exactly right. And the risk the risk is still. I mean, the, the poaching continues wherever you go. They've moved a lot of their, their poaching from from Kruger National Park to private reserves within the country. Kruger National Park is Mozambique, um, and Mozambique is a is the world's poorest, seventh poorest country. So you talk about need and greed. There's a great need there, and um, and uh, but now the, the kind of systems have improved in, in controlling their poaching, and also they're less they're less rhinos in the Kruger Park, so they're going elsewhere. Yeah. Um, just before we finish up as well, Ray, and we are going to give people this opportunity to to get your book, The Crash of the Rhinos. But before we do. Um, another organisation that I know you have a lot of time for and, and uh, a, a big love for, in fact, all the proceeds from the, this book are going uh, towards as well, is uh, the Black Mamba Project. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, and thank you for that. And I, I appreciate that. That the, the Black Mamba is the is the, dead, the the most deadly snake in in Africa. It's 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 a it's a long snake. It's two meters plus, and it's and its venom is is literally deadly. And um, several years ago, a fellow who's now a good friend, Craig Spencer, came up with this idea to, to have a, an anti-poaching unit, um, which was all females. Now, you say, well, why would it be all females? His view, and this is not in any way a sexist comment because those are dangerous these days, is to say that they are, they are more reliable, they're more thorough, they're more loyal, and, and more focused than, 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 than many of the men, and I can speak for, for Africa in this particular case. So he set up this group and called them the Black Mamas, which, which is, they get dressed in uniform, but he encourages them to be women. And they literally patrol an area around a game reserve, physically do that and work on what they call the broken window syndrome. But essentially, they'll patrol and they get to know that area like you know your front yard. So if the following day there's been a Coke bottle or a cigarette butt, they know something's happened there, and then the chances are the poachers have gone through that fence. So they do that, and they, they're not armed, and so they're, they're in constant radio contact. And they, I, I, I admire them immensely. They're also a force for good in their, in, their, in their villages where they live, where drugs and prostitution and, and uh, domestic violence are, are rife, particularly when you don't have much money. And they go in and they, and they describe you know, why an animal is worth more alive than dead, and also the, the benefits of being involved in conservation. And they've had an enormous success rate. So 
I, they are very, very high on my admiration list. And um, so that's, that's blackmumbers.org is, is, is how you find them. It's called M-A-M-B-A-S. And uh, if you really look at their website, it's actually quite entertaining in many ways to see these ladies. They're very, uh, they really are special women. So. Yeah. And it's certainly the case. I know at the time of printing with the book, you know, there are 22 uh, young women and one bloke in there as well. So it's definitely lived up to the vision of, of what that's been about as well. That's, as right. that's right. And he um, gets plenty. Yes, I reckon he does. I reckon. Uh, Ray, before we let you go, let's just uh, give everybody the opportunity. Well, actually, not necessarily everybody, but the first 20 people. We've got 20 books uh, up for offer of Ray's uh, new book, The Crash of Rhinos. Uh, all you need to do is type the word rhino uh, and send it to this number. Just SMS it through 0428-899-899. That's the word rhino, 0428-899-899. And the first 20 through, you're going to get a copy of this book. You'll need to come and collect it because we won't be able to get them all out to you, but you can come into through the offices as we get and, uh, and collect your book. Um, once more, uh, rhino to 0428-899. 899, the first 20 through now are going to be getting that and we'll get in contact with you in the next 24 hours to let you know you are one of the winners. Final time, Rhino, 0428, 899, 899. Ray, thanks so much for your time and uh, we wish you all the best with the continued passion uh, to you know make a stand, educate, inform and actually also action uh, the work of uh, you know changing the lives of these rhinos uh, as we go through our world and especially here in Australia as well. Thanks again for your time. Thank you very much, Dad. And I'd just like to say that thank you to Ross Eddingworth too, who's made a lot of this happen. So if I may do that, but thank you so much for your support. I really do appreciate it. It's important. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Ross has been a big one to connect us up, which has been wonderful. Ray Dearlove has been my guest here on 89.9 The Light.